0: Welcome to Brand New Doctor with me, Rala Kerajo, doctor turned brand strategist and graphic designer for health and wellness. Each episode, I talk to an inspiring doctor or dentist who has built a successful brand and share insights with you on everything they don't teach you in medical and dental school, on how to succeed and make a lasting impact. Your success story has already begun, but life doesn't hand out pass marks. So this is for you, if you want to go beyond
1: book smart.
0: Okay, let's talk about facing big world problems. Imagine this scenario with me for a second. You walk away from a conversation with someone you thought was there to help you, but instead you leave feeling dismissed, disempowered, or even disrespected. Now imagine this becomes what you expect from that person. What would you do? I'll take a guess that you would probably avoid going to see them altogether. So I just described a healthcare experience which many black women, including myself, have had. And part of the reason why there are glaring disparities in our health outcomes compared to other racial groups. Faced with such big problems, it can be hard to know where to begin, and if you've ever tried to change the status quo, you might understand some of the frustration. But my guests, Dr. Remy Mokeku and Dr. Jennifer Owusaje, are doing something about this. Chatterbox, the platform they created is using social media to give black women the safe space and the time of day to ask questions. It's wonderfully simple, but this can make all the difference by helping patients to feel empowered to get the right treatment for them. Now, simple does not mean easy. Remy and Jennifer are also specialist registrars in obs and gynae at busy hospitals in London. You may also be in full-time training, busy studying, or juggling other commitments in your life, and want to solve big problems like healthcare inequalities, perhaps even at the same time as you're figuring out how to navigate the professional world as a minority. If you don't know how to start, where to start, and how to keep going in spite of the obstacles, start here. Listen to this conversation. Thank you so, so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to talk to you both. I think what you're doing is amazing. I think it's great. Obviously, as a Black woman myself, I think it's wonderful that we're getting the information that we want written specifically for us. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff going on out there that is not very positive for us, but you are validating our experience and humanizing it. So I'm, I'm really grateful for that. So I just want to dive right in and ask you some questions. So so the story goes that you met in medical school and then kind of years later, chat her box began. But what happened in between? Can you help to fill in the blanks a little bit?
2: So like you said, so we've been friends from the first year of university and we've both always been quite passionate about women's health and then somehow both found our way into specialising in obstetrics and gynaecology and ended up working together. But even before that, we'd always spoken about our experiences whilst doing our job. And th- there was so many conversations we'd had about like the experiences of Black women and what we'd witnessed and what we'd encountered. And we were used to speak about it so much to the point that we thought we need to do something because these women could easily be our friends, our aunties, our cousins. And we don't want these women to go through experiences that would impact their health and their health care as well. And we realised and we recognised that a lot of the time it was because a lot of women lacked that information required to make informed choices about their health. So we decided that we wanted to create a platform that would empower women to to make those choices for those for their health, essentially.
1: I mean, we met basically on the first day of uni, um, lived together. And even through our own experiences with women's health, Jen and I both suffered from really painful periods. And when we were living together in the flat, our periods will sync up. We'd both be missing the same lectures, clutching water bottles <laughs> and really going through it comparing notes as to which medication worked, which you know, who had the stronger, you know, NSAID or whatever. So like ibuprofen type medication. And it's definitely through our own experiences in in you know, with our own sort of period and things like that, our own decision about or decisions around contraception. Because I remember we very early on were told, oh, go on the pill and but again you might know within our culture it's like, oh if you take the pill you might never get pregnant. And having all those myths around our own decision making and then even personally going on to like having kids and things like that so we've definitely been medical students the patient have family members who are patients and then on the other side we're doctors and we're black doctors in a very non-black environment so I think that's all really led to a lot of our passions and why Chatterbox was started
0: yeah it sounds like you were made for this it's like it's led you perfectly to where you are today For someone else who is wanting to tackle a big issue in the way that you are, would you recommend that they are really focusing on their personal experience?
1: I think you kind of just need to do what feels right to you in the sense that I think a lot of our experiences... And a lot of our decisions outside of, say, Chatterbox are what make Chatterbox Chatterbox. It was very organic and it is something that matters a lot to us. And if you think about it, we've decided to go into this profession and we'll spend the next 20 plus years in this field of medicine and the. You know, for us, it felt like the least we could do is to do something that actually benefits Black women. Um, so it does very much feel like an offshoot of our of our role at work. And so my advice would just be, you'd kind of have to do something that you're genuinely passionate about with with the good, with good intentions. Yeah, I
2: don't know, Jen, what do you think? To add to that, I would also say just start. So Remy and I had like numerous conversations about doing this, but there was there was a long period between like talking about it and then actually starting it and I think because it felt like it was huge like how do we tackle such a big topic how do we approach it what what can we do will we even make an impact do people even want to listen to us but even if we affect only one person that's one person we've changed and and that's a huge impact and I think because we got into our heads a little bit so we didn't start but now that we have started, it's like now the momentum's there, we can just carry on. But starting was the hardest part. So I, I would definitely say just start it because you don't know where you'll end up, but at least you've done something.
0: What was the tipping point for you when you actually began Chat Her Box? Because like you said, you were talking about it for a while and oftentimes big ideas kind of get sat on <laughs> for, for a bit of time before you're ready to go. What, what was it that actually pushed you to do it in the end?
2: I think it was a mixture of things, but I think a, a lot of it there was certain frustrations about working and witnessing things that kind of just pushed us. I think that was the final tipping point. Do you think, Rose?
1: Yeah, no, I'd agreed. I, I think, and then we were in the same hospital. At the, like I think our schedules were a bit more similar, and then we just. The conversations became a lot more frequent. And I think, interestingly, we actually, someone had done an event, like a health event, a few months before. And then I came, went back and I was like, Jen, it was really good. And, and then we, again, we kept talking and kept talking about how much we could do, what we want to do, what we wanted to achieve. And I do think as an external, that was probably an accelerator for me mentally, because she was like, oh, OK, let's do an event together. And then COVID happened or COVID was about to happen or something. And then we were like, okay, we can't do an event. But if we we still need to get the word out there. And then we were like, we'll start with what we've got. And I think it's just sort of going on what Jed said about just starting. Um, we could have very much been like, okay, COVID has happened. We can't do any in-person events. We'll just let it be. But we were like, okay, what do, what can we do? And then that's kind of how the Instagram page itself started.
0: So starting small with the resources that you have available and then kind of growing from there is what what you'd say is a, is a good way to begin
2: exactly yeah
0: yeah you said that there are these experiences that you you had that lead, led to these conversations do you mind sharing a little bit more about the kinds of experiences that you were having that really pushed you to to start chat Hubbox?
1: I guess off the top of my head I remember being on a ward round so the the hospital that we were working together at the time in East London very diverse population um and the consultant body are not particularly diverse they don't necessarily reflect the population that you'd see and I think it was just probably very unconscious and not what you know not Done deliberately, but I guess it was like the tone in which sometimes patients were spoken to or spoken of, or just little things like how much time was spent in a room with a patient to really give them the information they required to make a decision. And it was just very much so that it I I felt for sure that the population couldn't really speak up for themselves. Sort of seeing that day in day out. It then magnifies really all the other sort of little experiences you've had over time. So, you know, obviously as a black doctor, when I did my first year of working, you know, you'd hear things like, oh like your skin colour, oh, you're the coloured girl, like all the daily microaggressions or working with another black doctor and then you being mistaken for the other person. And you know that happens as a as a medical body and you're like, but what happens to the patients? And the patients can't speak up. I, as a junior doctor, really can't speak up. And if I'm in a consultation with a patient, with a consultant, and I see the patient doesn't understand but the consultant's left the room, how much power do I have to be like, no, they don't understand. You need to re-explain. And that's only something that comes with time. So I think those types of experiences, especially towards the end, were definitely the tipping point. And I think Jen's got a story about a sickle cell patient that, do you remember the... Because I never actually met her, but it was one of your stories about a sickle cell patient and how they spoke of her being problematic and things like that. Do you know, it's
2: it's such a shame because I was thinking, as you were saying, the sickle cell patient, I was like, which, like, which patient... <laughs> Because there's been so many experiences where been labelled as being aggressive or being rude, and like when I've met the patient, like they're far from that label. Like they're they're so far from that label. I'm like, why has she been labelled that way? But when another woman of a different race has spoken in the exact same manner, she wasn't given that label. And it's a shame because we recognise that sickle cell causes extreme pain for patients, and then that's exacerbated when they're pregnant because they might have like nausea and vomiting. We're always told that they shouldn't be dehydrated because that could lead to a sickle crisis. But these women, like this woman in particular, was labelled as being like pain-seeking and rude, and it was such a shame because that was far from the truth. And had anyone given her the time, they would realise that 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 she was she was a patient that needed our help. And needed the right type of pain relief. But obviously, if you're in pain, like, I don't know about you guys, but when I'm in pain, I have no time for anybody. (laughs) I don't, I don't really want to speak to you. I don't, like, I just want to be by myself and just deal with the pain. And if you've come to seek help and you're in a hospital and you feel like you're you're being ignored, then sometimes you won't act in the best way necessarily. Sometimes you just, you just want to be heard and sometimes the way to achieve that is, you know, raising your voice. And it's a shame that women have to, to end up like that because they're not being heard initially when they're speaking of their pain and things. But yeah, it's a shame that there's so many, so many examples.
0: You know, it's really interesting for me to hear you guys describing the experience of black patients it's not out of the realm of reason for me. Like everything you're describing, I can totally imagine that happening. But my experience was more from being a black doctor in a predominantly white area and dealing with the microaggressions myself. But it's very interesting the point that you raise that if everyone is mixing you up, <laughs> you know, with with someone else, what are they doing to those patients as well? So, so yeah, that's very eye opening. How do you think? having had your personal experiences of healthcare of medicine helps you to help other people
1: I think from a so from a gynae point of view having had sort of period pain for a long time and it not necessarily being investigated and sometimes because of well I say purely because it was something that I came to expect as normal yeah I have painful periods nothing can be done about it despite going to the GP multiple times as a teenager and just being given the same medication. So I came to expect it as normal. So therefore, I've normalised an abnormal symptom in my life. So as a doctor, I'm very clear about people not normalizing pain and not normalizing discomfort and seeking help and so I think that's how my experience has helped in that sense but also just to have the empathy required and as a doctor yes we're understaffed we're overworked we're tired but you know for that patient's experience sometimes we just have to like swallow it and let that patient have their moment and understand that they still need care and that's for me is a constant battle because sometimes you're like I'm human too as a doctor, but actually we do have a role in validating people's symptoms. And I think personally that probably just never happened for me. And then from a pregnancy point of view, I think because I was already in the profession, I had a very quote-unquote privileged experience with my pregnancies. And so I can't say that I experienced it like a member of the general public where I didn't feel heard. But again, I completely see how it happens and happens time and time again. Yeah, I I have to agree,
2: like, especially with empathising with patients, because like Remy was saying, we've both suffered with like horrible periods. So whenever I see a woman, I don't want her to have experienced it and gone. Even if she has experienced it, I want her to know that I've heard her and that the pain that she's experiencing is real, because a lot of the time it gets dismissed by other people. And like, for example, I remember I saw a young black lady in clinic, who had been told by her entire family that, you know, having periods of pain is normal. So she'd suffered with this pain for a long time and just took simple pain relief and thought, you know, eventually it will get better. And she had been told by her mum that once you have children, it will get better. But, and I, I remember I've been told the same thing and I'm just like, yeah. but when will I have children? So <laughs> just Until then. <laughs> Come on. Um, but... I I remember just thinking your symptoms sound like textbook endometriosis
1: Um, Mm.
2: and she'd never been investigated and I was like well we should investigate it at least and we'd done the investigations and it turned out that she did have endometriosis so you know and sometimes you don't have an underlying pathology sometimes it's just really bad periods but that doesn't mean that you should just deal with it just because you know and as because it's something that I've experienced myself, I'm just like, well, I don't, I, if you're telling me you're in pain, let's do something about it because you don't have to suffer. I, I've, I've been through, I know what it feels like. I can empathise with you. So let's, let's do something, let's investigate. And I think that's what I bring to the specialty because I've experienced it.
0: How do you think that we can improve the empathy across the scale of other people for black women?
1: I don't know. I think we need more black female doctors, to be honest. I think, and I, or even just people who are allies to black women and like true allies, not fake speech, just doing it because it's popular to do. Yeah. And I think, you know, like even calling out my colleagues, we have to change the way we speak about patients from different cultural groups, because I think it's the way we make assumptions about people's race or religion that completely seeps through to then how we treat them in a consultation so I saw a patient who again had been complaining about heavy painful periods for many years had multiple fibroids and her sister had had a hysterectomy and was you know pain-free and fairly recovered and she had been asking for the same thing for a number of years But I think she had a psych history and on, you know, and her psych history in the cultural context of an African woman coming from Africa wouldn't have been abnormal within an African setting. But within the NHS, it, it was deemed that she was having psychotic episodes. And so when I saw her, she's sitting in front of me crying, screaming, saying, why won't anyone give her a hysterectomy? Why are they presuming that she wants to have more kids? Why are they presuming that she wants to keep her womb when that's clearly not what she wants? And so I was like, oh, yeah, I can see on the letter. And she's like, why do they keep bringing up this psych history. I had a bad period, my mother in the village told me I needed to do some rituals to get over it and now they're calling me psychotic and they won't let it go. I'm completely saying this is what I do in my country, it's normal for us. And obviously I'm of Nigerian heritage so I'm like okay I get it but unfortunately if you say these things to English people they will not be on your side and it'll be like oh psych we can't operate on her They'll push you to the bottom of the queue. You'll be coming for another two or three years. And then on the other hand, I'm like, but you've been coming here for three years and they won't give you what you want. Go to another hospital, go to another, ask for a second opinion. And her reasoning was, why should I start again when I've been here? So it's just like, for me, accepting that this is her cultural, for her culturally, this makes sense. You can't then put labels on her and then use that to withhold treatment. And you can run that across any cultural group, any religious group. Yeah. And I just think as a medical prophet, like we have to do better and we have to do better than doing mandatory training to say that I'm not racist or I'm not extremist or I don't hold negative views about people.
2: Yeah, I, d- yeah. I definitely agree because like growing up in London, obviously it's multicultural, so exposed to so many different cultures. And so I'm, privileged in the sense that I understand a lot of different cultures because I've been I've grown up around it but I think studying medicine has exposed me more to different cultures and understanding why people do certain Um, things but we rotate around different hospitals and as you go around different areas in London there are different pockets of um, London with certain populations so where I'm working now is very different from where I was working before and understanding the differences between different cultures just because it's easy to label all black women as the same but we're not and even between the different places different places we we've all got our slight differences as well and understanding that and it's it's easy to it's easy to say oh let's just tackle black women as a whole but i think that also has to be explained that we're not all the same and therefore we yeah. you can't have a single approach to it there has to be different approaches into understanding how black women and women of different backgrounds yeah. understand healthcare and then we can and then we can make those differences in how we treat the women but i think if we have a one size fits all way of working then we're never going to really deal with the true
1: issues yeah and i do think as well there are, there's often messages that come out from say the royal college of obstetrics and gynaecology or public health type messages and the way they're presented the people that the information land on tend to be white middle class women and then they run with the issue and use that to change their to change healthcare or what they request for themselves but then what happens is that the women who are consistently left behind are the women of low social economic class mm-hmm. or of a minority background. And it's like sometimes just give people the information at the point at which they're, they're they're at, if that makes sense. Like you can't post something on... And this is something Jen and I are talking about as well. Like you can't post something on a social media platform and expect the woman who's just come from another country who might not be familiar with social media to then be receptive of that information and change how she interacts with the antenatal service. Because oftentimes what happens is they come into the country and they come and stay within their own sort of social community. And therefore, you know, things it's harder for them to assimilate or, or get all the information they require. And even like for us, we know that black women go to black hairdressers or they go to black churches and things like that. And is that information available for them at that point? And if it's not, then really all the messaging that is coming out from say the Royal College or public health or it's not reaching people that genuinely need it and that's something that we've discussed that how do we get our information out to people who we feel will genuinely benefit from it and not just use tried methods and channels yeah.
0: So it's required a certain amount of creativity from you guys in in mm-hmm. tackling this have there been any solutions that you've come across ideas that you've come up with that surprised you
2: so in terms of ideas we have we so we want to meet people where they're at so we've we thought about like maybe you know going to these these places of worship or going to the hairdressers and just trying to meet people where they are as opposed to trying to bring them to our social media platform because it's not always accessible to people but it is a challenge and we haven't quite worked out how we're going to do it. Bearing in mind, we're working, Remy's got kids and, you know, so we, we have to really work out the logistics of it before we can like, actually say that this is what we're doing. But it is definitely something we want to do because we don't want to just limit ourselves to a social media platform. We really want to get the message out to everyone.
0: I did want to ask you about managing the stresses of work and being a mother personal life and also chat her box as well how do you find the energy where do you find the energy to to be able to do all of these things how do you manage your time
2: I personally think Remy is a superhuman because I don't know how (laughs) she (laughs)
0: does
2: (laughs) it honestly because I even like the work-life balance is a struggle for me working full-time and then like coming home I'm always like I, I just feel exhausted most of the time and I've just been studying for my exams as well so I can't say that I've had much input and Remy's been really holding down the thought for us but yeah it's it's just trying to make time when you do have the time and just saving things and and then just posting as and when you can but yeah I I definitely think it's 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 a balance between when one is busy, the the other person just, you know, holds things down until we we both work off each other, basically.
1: Yeah. And I think as well, it's just realistic, if that makes sense. Like since we've had the platform, there are times when we've had to take breaks because it's just not feasible. And I I know Jen's suggesting that she's not had much to do, but she's had a house reno and she's still working in a pandemic. Whereas I've, you know I'm at home with obviously the kids and things like that but I'm probably a bit more in control of my time at the moment but you know I'm quite hard on myself about wanting to do more and not finding the time to do more and can be sometimes hypercritical of what I am and I'm not doing but then actually taking stock for me is quite important and just being okay that what I've done today is enough and tomorrow we go again and and you know and and with, and with with Chatterbox specifically, we're giving what we can give to make a difference. Um, and yeah, like you know, I particularly love the workshops because again, fine, it happens once a month or so, but it's a great time where you know you've got two hours. Someone does a presentation, but then you're actually getting to speak to people who turn up and answer their questions. And even that can just be a bit more powerful than an Instagram post that might not be directly related to them. Um, so yeah, so there's obviously a lot to do. There's a lot of balls that are juggling. I guess my advice to myself every day is take it easy with me. You know, there's always tomorrow. If you do not get it done today, you'll get it done tomorrow. And just be appreciative of the things that we are doing, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. I know for me, the bigger the thing that I want to do, the more important it feels to me. And the more things that I could be doing instead, the worse my procrastination can be, and so I, I wonder if this is ever a problem for you, and if it is, how are you able to to manage it?
2: I think I'm the queen of procrastinating, <laughs>
1: which is <not laughs> no, that's me, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> that's it's <nice>. my title.
2: <laughs> um. <laughs> I st- I'm still something I'm working on. I I can't lie. I've I've set New Year's resolutions this year, so <laughs> hopefully it will be better. But
1: yeah, something I'm working on. I guess like I don't know. I I saw this tweet because um Chris, my husband, he procrastinates as well, and the reason why people continue to procrastinate is because they know they get away with it. And so even though you're calling yourself queens, you're very high functioning members of society. And it clearly works for you. Do I procrastinate? For sure. And if, for instance, every, you know, most days I might write a to-do list and I'll be like, oh, I'll do this at this time. I'll do this at this time. And more so when I'm a, like, because I'm on maternity leave, because I was finding in the beginning, I'd be like, oh, I'm going to do it. And then I'll binge watch a show. And then I'm like, I don't even feel good at the end of the day for having watched said show. Yeah. So so I write a to-do list, I'm like, okay, I'm going to get it done. And it's like, oh. But doing the laundry is just easier. It's not mentally taxing or, you know, doing the dishes. But even if I just do that, I still tick it off. And seeing that tick makes me feel better about myself. And then I am then more likely to do the half hour or the 45 minutes of doing a post or interacting on Instagram or sending an email. Yeah. And yeah, and I just like giving myself pats on the back. So I think that's what gets me going. Do you you ever do this
0: thing where you've... Already done the thing, but you put it on the list just so you can tick it off. Yeah, for (laughs) sure. Yeah. No, no, I do. I do that all the time. I'm like, why didn't I put that on the list to begin with? That was
1: hard. Yeah, especially (laughs) if my list is done at midday, then everything I've done that morning gets written down so that I can be like, done, done. Yeah, yeah.
0: I do. I truly believe in giving yourself pats on the back. I think it's really important. You know, something that I've heard about procrastination is that actually there are many reasons why you might procrastinate and actually identifying the reason why you're procrastinating can be very helpful. There are theories that it can be relating to kind of your confidence with dealing with an issue. So if you if it's something that you, you anticipate is going to be difficult for you, you, you don't quite believe you'll be able to handle, you're more likely to procrastinate on that front. Other ideas are if we think it's not very clearly defined what it is that we need to do so if you know for instance if it's like I don't know if it was like I want to improve my Instagram That's not very clear what it is that you need to actually do so having like very clear actionable steps can help as well but yeah I'm I'm a fiend for like TEDx videos and stuff (laughs) (laughs) so I probably will reference TEDx again at some point we've talked a bit about kind of Keeping up your enthusiasm and managing your time. So, a little bit more about just how was it that you were able to see this very big issue around the health outcomes of Black women? There are loads of scary kind of statistics out there. Some of the worst are that we are four times more likely to die in childbirth compared to white women, for instance. I just wonder how do you kind of look at these? these big problems and zoom in to where it is that you can begin.
2: I think because the headlines are so triggering but they don't offer a solution. And for us it's it's just trying to take small steps and we know that part of it is is empowering women and how do you do that? You educate women and if a woman is educated then she's empowered and then she makes informed choices but it's it's really difficult because when you do look at the problem it, it seems so huge but we can only do what we can do we recognize how big the problem is but even if we can take a small chunk and and you know just tackle that problem just a tiny bit not not look at the whole thing but just a tiny bit then it seems a bit more manageable but I, I know that the Royal College have set up a task force and they've got things that they're trying to do as well. But from our point of view, we, we're we just doing the little that we can and we
1: hope that we can affect some change and have an impact. Yeah, and I think as well, like it's very important to not victim blame. So the victims are Black women. And I think from sort of the Royal College, they'll say, oh, well, there's a number of things, there's a number of things. The most obvious things... Are that it's racism or a systemic inequalities. And everyone knows that's what it is, but no one knows how to change it. And the people who could change it are the people that won't benefit from it. And so then it's such a huge thing to try and tackle. And almost everyone, you say, oh, there's so many factors there are. And there are so many factors. And even down to a micro level, there are times where I've seen patients and they're like, oh, doctor, whatever you say is best. And that's the thing that really concerns me because if you say that to me, and I want to try and explain it, or take the time to explain it, and you say it to a colleague who doesn't really want to explain it, your, your choice in treatment will be very different, or the way the decision is made is very different. And I think that's the one thing that we're trying to do, is that if, as a woman, you go into an appointment with the information already there, and you're part of the decision-making, your outcomes are more likely to be better than if you're a passive participator. And that's where empowering comes in, health education comes in and knowing what it is you can and can't do. And even more as a collective as well. Like I know we speak about how certain groups of women are treated, but certain groups of women are treated in a certain way because the, our colleagues know that they will complain. They We know that they know the system, whereas women who don't know the system, who don't complain, often get bad or you know comparatively bad care and it's not fair but it's the honest truth and just knowing all of that we felt that the best way that we could do it with the information we have with the resources we have at this level is to work on a bottom-up approach and when we are consultants and we are you know have a seat at the table or a bigger seat at the table and more I don't know what's the word, weight, then we can also do things within our trust that we work in or within our area of London and, and tackle things on, the, on a bigger scale. But yeah, doing what we have, doing what we can do with what we have is kind of where we're at, I think.
0: So we make people sit up a little bit more by educating Black women more on their health or empowering them about their health so that people understand that you need to spend more time with this person, really. Does that sound about right?
1: Yeah, for sure. I think that, yeah, definitely where we're coming from.
0: Because I, I was curious how you made that that leap that it was about education, really, and that you'd want to start with education. I'll be honest, I haven't heard what the task force is doing from the Royal College, but are they taking mm. a similar approach to you or...? What do you think about their approach?
1: So what I know of their approach is that they've broken the task force down into sort of education of, well, yes, yeah, so education So, how do they sort of tackle unconscious bias or racism within, within the system. And then they've got a part about trainees and how people who are of ethnic minorities as doctors often feel like they're bullied, they can't be cut and how they can tackle that and also come out with policies I think that they feel will benefit Black or Asian or other ethnic minority patients Um, so I think that's kind of where they're at the task force I'm sure that like there's lots of work in the background and not to my knowledge I'm not sure there's much about to my knowledge anyway of like patient education mm-hmm. but yeah but again it's I think yeah everyone's literally doing what they can and we just want to make sure that information that people are getting is evidence-based information from a doctor because you know there are also within our community we know that black women are more likely to have fibroids and we often see misinformation about how fibroids can be treated or what it's related to is it related to relaxer you know and all of those things so there are some wild beliefs out there that often get taught by you know, taught to women without very much medical background and things like that, so also trying to undo some of that and misinformation as well I think is also where we come in, and that was a big thing for us as well, like yeah
0: yeah i well, I had never heard the one about relaxer before, <laughs>
1: yeah, definitely very widely held belief. Oh that yeah. it's
0: relaxer. Oh my goodness! Yeah, the, it's yeah. It's interesting to hear that because you know when you describe what it is that you do, it seems like it sounds to me like a very kind of logical thing. Actually, that that black women need to hear that their experience is valid, and they need to they need to kind of hear information that allows them to make an informed decision. I think that sounds sounds fundamental. But but funny that the Royal College doesn't actually they're not investing time in the education so much on that on the patient side but more on the on the doctor side or the on the healthcare side which I think is also necessary and I think very good but I don't know I'm, I'm a I'm a firm believer that you know it's not our fault it's not a we shouldn't blame ourselves but we have to claim our experience and through education we are able to kind of Claim that back and claim back our power. Yeah. I wonder what what you think about that because, like you said, you mentioned that victim blaming is is a huge issue. Uh, where do you think the line is drawn between blame and claim?
1: I, I I think I think on one hand, I think from a from a sort of organizational point of view, where majority of the body are white, I think they might be very scared to talk about how can we empower the patients because again it sounds like victim blaming right so I can see how that's a that's a really difficult line to walk but where I mean where where is the line I think I think I think the line doesn't exist if you acknowledge that patients need to be educated but the workforce need to change and open up and I think there is no line to that it's that's more of a holistic approach I think you draw the line when it's like It is your right as a patient to go to a doctor and say X, Y, Z, and the doctor is not to blame because you've not spoken up. And I think that's what's what's a tricky situation. So, yeah, so, I mean, as much as we're talking about patient education and empowerment, we're very much saying that it is not fair, which is categorically true, it is not fair that as a black woman you have to... Threaten with complaints and have to do a second opinion and have to do a third opinion in order for you to get care it is not fair but the system isn't fair and how we're coming about it is how can we help you navigate the system as it is so that your outcomes are slightly better and so yeah the line is tricky yeah the line is it's just i don't even know if it's a line i just think it's <laughs> it's just it's because it's not a line because it's not a oh well if you knew this as a patient this would never happen to you i don't think that's the case because i think there are black women who do know everything and bad stuff still happens to them right so it's not about it's not just education and it's not just empowerment because again Like what Jen was saying, like if you've been ignored so many times, so then when you come to the doctor, you're already on a back foot and you're already defensive. Your attitude is going to demonstrate that, right? And then the doctor that you're dealing with is automatically going to have their back up and act like you're the problem. And then your outcomes get affected. So, you know, yeah. The issue is doctors need to change, the system needs to change. But how can we help how can we help you own your space as well and even like I recently had an appointment for my daughter and it was a virtual appointment and I've got this thing about not really liking to say that I'm a doctor to get good care because I shouldn't have to say it I shouldn't have to have like a backup plan in my pocket and even I'm like meditating a couple of days before the before the appointment, I'm like, I really just hope this person's gonna take me seriously. They're not gonna try and make it seem like I'm crazy. Oh, if it's a video appointment, I need to make sure my hair's tied back. I need to make sure I look professional. And why should I have to do all of that just to be sure that I'll be taken seriously? Like, that is not right. But if I know that doing all of that makes my life a little bit easier, then I'm gonna do it. But it's not right, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I explain my point very well. No, no, <laughs> but, no yeah. it's, it's so true. I I yeah. always quote
0: Whitney Houston when it comes to these situations. It's not right, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> you really shouldn't have to, but
1: yeah, but it's the system we're in, and yeah, and and yeah, obviously, education empowerment needs to be had because we see that it works for other groups of women, mm-hmm. but we also recognise that this is not the only answer, it's only a tiny answer. Mm-hmm. And I could see how the college would shy away from saying, let's educate black patients, because then you're putting the onus on the black patients and that's not right from an organisational point of view either.
0: Yeah. yeah, I suppose you you guys have more, I don't want to say privileged position but as black women to provide kind of educational services to other black women it's not it's not patronizing yeah yeah because
2: we hope we, exactly we definitely hope because I found if someone looks like me it may, it sometimes their message comes across better than somebody that I can't relate to because we mm. probably have never had any of the same experiences before
1: yeah And it's definitely even with the workshops, because, again, we've definitely got a thing about making sure that all our content and all our imagery are black women. And if it's not, we'll find something else to use. But all our speakers that have spoken at our workshops have been black women who work in the specialty and definitely the feedback we're getting from our workshops is it's so nice to speak to two black doctors. It's so nice. Like we had a, a workshop on polycystic ovaries and the person who gave it had polycystic ovaries herself. And she was showing them the medication that she's using and what medication they needed to be on, what they could get over the counter, what's worked for her, what hasn't. And for them that was invaluable because here's a doctor who treats PCOS, who has PCOS, who's telling me what I need to do as a patient with PCOS and she looks like me, of course, you're going to really take what she's saying versus a white male or white female who doesn't know where you're coming from, doesn't know what your foods like, doesn't really know your cultural background and is saying, oh, you just need to lose weight. So I think for us as well, it's very important that there is representation that you're taking of Russian people who, again, not all black people are the same, but have an inkling of a similar background mm-hmm. um, to you. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: I think you're so right that having someone who you can relate to on so many levels is really, really important. Have you had much pushback from people with starting chat her box with regards to people who think that why do you need to do this? Basically, I just find that generally speaking, when something is made specifically for black people, other people have something to say about it. Mm-hmm. So I wonder what your experience has been of that.
2: I haven't had any until recently but it wasn't it wasn't obvious in that somebody had asked I was talking about it with somebody else and then a colleague asked oh what is this and I just briefly summarized what it is that we do and she's like oh pulled a funny face rolled her eyes I was like Wow. Okay. Like <laughs> you didn't need to say much, and I think that was the first time that I'd experienced something like that. I think most of the time, most people are very supportive, but then equally, I'm quite selective about about who I tell as well yeah. because sometimes I, I just I I don't even want to get certain people's feedback. Yeah. I don't particularly care for their feedback, not in a rude way, but I just don't. And it's also not designed for them, so. Yeah, I guess in a sense, I'm quite selective about who my who I'm telling, and therefore, I know that I the people that I'm telling won't give me negative feedback about it. Yeah,
0: I yeah. think that's very smart. To be honest with you, the truth is that we look for too much reassurance from people a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. I was listening to a really interesting podcast. There's this guy called Seth Godin. He's like a he's kind of a writer, marketeer guy in the states. And he was saying that we value reassurance way too much, that we are looking for kind of validation a lot of the time, but it's kind of an addictive drug that actually never really satisfies you because Mm. we want reassurance that the future will be okay and that the idea that we have will work out. But truth is that no one can actually give that to you. Mm -hmm. And so when we kind of seek an opinion from someone, we try and get some kind of feedback and then they give us a little bit. It's like great for a second. And then we need some more because we know deep down that that doesn't really tell us much. So that way he was kind of just talking about reassurance as a whole. But I I think equally, you know, you don't need everybody's opinion. Like sure. we should only really seek feedback from people whose opinion we value and will help us in some way. I'm very interested in how we can provide information to medical students that they're not getting in medical school for their development, but also to just improve healthcare as a whole for everyone. If you imagine that you were the deans of a medical school, what would you want to change in the medical curriculum to improve the experience of black women?
2: I think just going back to when we were at medical school, all the images we saw were of white people. I never Mm. saw an image of a non-white person ever. Mm. I don't think I saw a single
1: image unless it was hiv
2: yeah of course
1: yeah if it was hiv
2: (laughs) (laughs) then of course it was only a black person but otherwise it was never a black person um and so like i was completely unfamiliar with a black patient it was only when we got to the wards when we're doing our clinical rotations that i saw a black patient and then i'd be like oh okay it's it's different from what we've been taught in our our non-clinical years but it's i think If they incorporated it more, I know that that, I've forgotten his name, had created the dermatology book with all the images of black, of skin conditions in black people. Is that Um, the Mind
0: the Gap book? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I think that's brilliant, but it shouldn't be on the students to create that. It should really Mm. be on the universities to make sure that the the what they're teaching shows all diff because we're not the same. You don't just have white people. Even if you're in a predominantly white area, you may have a black patient. And understanding that, I think, would definitely have a huge impact on how people are treated. Because there was this long-standing myth that the black women don't feel pain, mm. and I feel like even in medical school, that 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 idea wasn't eradicated. I even I was like, oh, okay, well. You know black women probably aren't are probably a bit stronger, probably a bit, and it's I shouldn't be thinking like that, and it was only when I started working that I was like, no, they feel the same this same pain it's exactly the same pain, the operations are exactly the same, like nothing's different, so why should they then be treated differently so I think from a university point of view, if you had more diversity in what you're showing the images that you're showing, even the people giving the
1: lectures as well, that would make mm. different. Yeah. I think as well, like, like tackle racism within the, within the faculty. Because when we were in medical school, there were so many microaggressions. I remember like my maiden name, my maiden surname was Oshandina, So my name is, my initials are O-O-O. Um, And I remember we were doing this test or this like paper and it was like, oh, we'll put your initials down. And then the teacher was like, yeah, we will never know who you are. Well, unless you're Nigerian and you've got a triple O, which was me. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, like, how can someone just say this and think it's acceptable and move on? And even within like, you know, what Jen was saying about black women don't feel pain. That's not just for black women. That is littered through the whole medical curriculum. Black Mm -hmm. people are more likely to have hypertension. Black people can't have this medication. Black people this, black people that. So you leave thinking that black people have every condition under the sun apart from cystic fibrosis. But no real reasoning, no real methods on how to treat them just labelling them as sick and frail. The paradox is very strong. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. (laughs) You know, know, they won't benefit from this medication, so don't offer it. So I just think all this type of nonsense that seeps through, like, needs to be removed. Mm -hmm. It needs to be challenged Mm -hmm. because you're... You know, again, like in our medical school, it was a huge medical school, but the black people were a minority. I think less than ten, less than one percent of the population group. But because you saw a lot of black people, oh, there are tons of black people in our medical school. Not that's not true. And then if you think about that, how many black doctors get work within London? Because London's super competitive, so the doctors never reflect the population, and and all of that stuff. Or doctors have to go work outside of London, where again they're another minority. It's just, yeah, the whole system does not work mm. and it's not beneficial to black people or other ethnic minorities, specifically black people. And because we know that there's other races that are well represented within the NHS and they tend to do well. So, yeah, I think the curriculum needs a look at for sure. And and the people who teach need to be different as well. They need to look different. They need to come from different backgrounds. Yeah.
0: You know, we actually went to the same uni. We all went to King's. I guess for me, I feel like it was a very it was a very polarizing experience being at medical school because it's like I know what I know about being black and my experience of being black and the people that I know that are black and then what I'm being told in the lectures mm. <laughs> about mm. <laughs> about blackness. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I guess I'll just learn this for the test.
1: Yeah. And sure. also
0: hold my personal thoughts and opinions on this at the same time I I just wonder for a black student a black medical student what kind of advice would you give them to kind of navigate the awkwardness (laughs) that is in medical school
1: oh the microaggressions run Mm. strong I have some stories (laughs) (laughs) too many
0: stories with teachers
1: oh my goodness and and it uh, it doesn't get better and that's what's a shame, like it doesn't get better and and I think there is power in finding other black doctors and having your own community. there's power in that, mm-hmm. but unfortunately, well, eventually we will be within with hiring power and things like that, and you know that there are more of us coming through, but yeah, but you're still a minority at work, and it's just learning that within within medical school. I still felt fairly protected because I did have a very, you know, I had lots of black friends. We all banded together. But that's actually not reflective of the real world. And then it just, it's just, you know, working is such a shock anyway. And then you're working and then you're losing your support network and then you're dealing with microaggressions that you were able to somehow feel protected against because you had the ACS. So the African Caribbean mm-hmm. Society. And that just doesn't exist as a working doctor. My advice is just It's a <laughs> it, <laughs> <laughs> Like It's a lot. It's a lot.
2: When you have your group of friends and you deal with the microaggressions, you can almost laugh at it. Like you can talk about it with your friends and get it off your chest. But I remember my first year of um, working. I was just outside of London in a predominantly white area and I was the only black FY1. And I was, I think, one of five doctors in this huge hospital. And there was so many microaggressions and it came from the patients, it came from the nursing staff, it came from the mm-hmm. consultants. Yep. And, like, I had... No one immediately, like, I was working with that I could talk to about this. And I found Mm. it really, really difficult. And, like, growing up in London, you know, it's not like you don't deal with these things. But I I did struggle for a bit. And it was like, I just need to get a thick skin. And it's a shame that it was like, I have to just get a thick skin. Mm. But you have to be strong. Because, unfortunately, until people are educated and know better, they will carry on and... it's almost like you have to just not accept it, but you just have to be strong and just know that it may come, but it it doesn't change who you, it shouldn't change who you are as a doctor and you shouldn't like react to it in a negative way. But there is no harm in telling, because I remember there was one time a nurse had refused to take blood from a patient because she was dark skinned. And I was like, What That, that makes no sense to me. She was like, no, no, no. She bleeped me from where I was and said, this patient's so difficult, I can't see her Uh, veins, she's too dark. No. I was like... (laughs) (laughs) I I didn't know you had to see the veins in order to take blood, I thought you had to palpate. She was like, no, 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 I can't do it. And I remember just, I I was, at at that point, I just hadn't had enough and I sat her down and I was like, listen, this isn't acceptable. You can't treat patients like this and you can't give this woman substandard care just because she's darker you're saying that you can't take her bloods, but this woman's got the most beautiful veins. It's like I'm. You've you've been doing this job longer than I have. You've got more mm. experience than me, and you're asking me to come and bleed her because she's dark skin. That's not a reason.
0: And she presumes um, you have X-ray vision or something. Or... <laughs> <laughs>
2: Apparently, I've got the same skin, so therefore, I should so be you can you can see
0: more. <laughs> you can understand
2: <laughs> and. I just remember I had to tell her like this isn't on this I, I, yeah. no one's ever told you I'm going to tell you today that this isn't okay yeah. and there are times where you just have to speak up and you just need to know when is the time sometimes it's not appropriate to speak up at that moment but sometimes it is appropriate and you have to tell your colleagues as well
1: but yeah.
2: yes medical school can be quite protective yeah because you have your group of friends that are immediately there and available to you and you can talk about things and you may not have access to that at work straight away and you may have to call somebody after work but you know making sure that you do have somebody like a supportive network is really important as well um, because unfortunately it is something that you will have to deal with in the career yeah
1: Yeah, And I think probably sign up to like mentor schemes because I know Mm. that there are quite a few that are coming through and we've definitely been asked and I think we've agreed to be mentors as well. So just like sign up to things like that where there are people who have gone through it who can speak you through it. Um, I think there's it's a shame because of our profession and reporting isn't very well like it's frowned upon and you know that it can affect your career if you do so and and all of those things which are wrong but again it's the system and we're hoping that things change I know especially within our specialty that's one of the things they're looking at like we've now got a representative who speaks up for di- you know for the diverse groups and things like that so so yeah so hopefully things are changing but yeah but it's just recognizing that yeah it's hard have support outside of work have mentors engage in mentors and put yourself out there like if you if you are working in a department where you're the only black doctor or you see other black doctors try and speak to them see what their experiences are and I remember so when John and I were working together we we're working with another black girl and we were all on the same level and they kept mixing us up as they do and then one consultant jokingly said oh I remember when we had three Asian women and I just Call them a combined name because I could never figure their names out. And I said, Are you suggesting that us three black doctors have a shared name? And he was like, Oh, no, 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 I would never. But we were in a room full of other doctors and everyone was laughing and it was all banter. And I was just like, Well, that's not really on. Um, And I, told the story because he said it was a joke. So I kept telling the story to everyone who would listen because I'm like, this is not on, like, this is not something that you can just laugh at. And I remember George Floyd happened and I said, oh, you know, that joke you made, I don't think it's appropriate because you know how maybe 10 or 15 years ago, a male consultant can tease a woman, a female consultant. Well, that's now considered assault. You know, the way you speak to black doctors will have to change because, you know the time is coming where that will be clear racism and you can't say it oh yeah but it's just a joke but no it's not I come to work I'm a minority as a doctor at work oh yeah but you know you live in London so I would have thought you would never feel like a minority I was like no I'm a minority at work in my specialty I don't see any black female consultant in my area that looks like me that's come through training that's got a consultant post oh yeah but you could say the same for white men they're a dying breed as well and it's just like you know we're not getting anywhere but it's also having these difficult conversations if you feel bold enough to have them that you need to challenge these ideas that you can't keep spouting out ignorant nonsense and think that you can get away with it and sometimes it's just calling them to task or you know a patient's like where are you from well I'm from England love leave me I'm here to take your blood, I'm moving on. You know, I'm not the coloured doctor. I have a name, I have a name badge. Yeah, but it's, yeah, stay strong.
0: I, I feel like it's it's a sad thing that our advice to black medical students has to largely be about just like managing racism. To both of your points, I, I definitely agree. I feel that I was very much coddled by kings, mm. by the multicultural nature of it, even though we were still minorities then I felt a lot safer in that environment and then I moved out to Bristol and Mm. I was working there and it was like a shock I was having feelings I had back when I lived in a predominantly white area growing up Mm. and I it was alien to me to have it come back again and just have this kind of constant feeling of just being less than after years of having grown my confidence in so many ways so I, I really feel that you're right that actually just being prepared for Possibly a change of environment and preparing yourself in terms of the people that you surround yourselves with, and um, and the people that you can go to if you if you want to talk about things mm. and reaching out to other black doctors as well would really help to make that transition easier. And I wish I knew that as well when I was starting to work really got to pick your brain about a bunch of different things so it's it's really great to hear from you guys what I wanted to finish on on a lighter note really just wanted to ask you what are you grateful for at the moment and what are you excited about in the year coming
2: Gen, that is know? a heavy
0: question <laughs> <laughs> I this, was nice like, this is the worst question we could have asked
1: <laughs> oh that's jokes Um, I think I'm grateful on the whole that I'm I'm in control of my own time on maternity leave that I get to spend all this time with the kids I'm grateful for that and I'm grateful for where I'm at in the sense of you know motherhood career-wise and and specifically with Chatterbox I think towards the end of last year I was getting into the cycle of do more do more do more but actually it's just remembering and writing down that This is what our vision was when we started. And this is the impact we're making. And this is good. And more will come. But this is good for now. Um, And yeah, so I'm grateful for that. And I'm just excited to see where this journey takes us, I think. I think uh, having a very prescribed career, you get into training, you do training for seven years, you pass your exams, you become a consultant. I think this path of actually just doing something that's a little off What's prescribed is nice because it's like, actually, where could this take us and what other avenues can this open up? And um, for me specifically, it's made me think that I'm actually more interested in on a more, I guess, wider scale of patient health and health outcomes and not just working in hospital. And, it, and it's just like playing with those ideas. So, yeah, I'm excited where that goes. Yeah. Also excited to go back to work.
2: What am I grateful for? I have just sat my exam. I am grateful that I'm not living in the Starbucks revising for 12 (laughs) hours a day and after work. Um, I'm praying that I've passed so I don't need to do that again. I'm also grateful for having peace of mind so I've like been struggling with imposter syndrome for a while now and it's and it's something that comes and goes but I feel like recently it's Like I've been dealing with it a lot better and feeling like I do deserve to be here and I do deserve to have like, you know, I like my what I'm saying matters and I can have a positive impact on my patients' lives and things like that. So I'm grateful for like that change in mindset. And yeah, in terms of what I'm excited for, I think like the same as Remy, I'm just excited to see the growth in Chatterbox. I feel like I've got a new like desire. For it, like new passion, and having sat the exam and got like a lot more information and more knowledge, I feel like I've got a lot more to bring to Chatterbox as well. So, yeah, excited for where we can go and where we can take it.
0: Yeah, that sounds amazing. That sounds so great. I think it's really interesting what you say about imposter syndrome. I've heard someone talk about imposter syndrome, and I think a lot of people deal with it as well, feeling like you don't deserve to be somewhere, that someone's going to find out that mm. you, like mm. you don't actually belong here or something. But I was listening to another TEDx video where they were talking about, don't laugh at me, mm. <laughs> they were talking about fear. And the guy had a really interesting take on fear, actually. His idea was that fear is something you can't get rid of, but it can be a guide for you, actually. Mm. Because generally speaking, you feel afraid when you're outside of your comfort zone. And it's actually kind of an indicator that you're in a position to grow and so i'm trying to just look at it in this way like actually it's because i'm outside of my comfort zone and that's where i will grow so so yeah thank you so much again for your time this has been for
2: having us yeah, yeah thank
0: you yeah this has been wonderful thank you so much for listening to this episode of brand new doctor remy and jen are such an insightful pair I hope you enjoyed their perspective on making a change in healthcare as much as I did. You can follow them on Instagram at Chatterbox. That's chat.her.box. And if you enjoyed this, don't forget to subscribe and share the episode. I really appreciate your feedback, so please leave a rating and review. It helps other people to discover the podcast as well. You can also follow me on Instagram at rollercare.so. That's R O L A K E. And I'll be back soon with another episode of Brand New Doctor.